Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to think of the five little things from any point in their life that they cherish and would like to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they love or want to have again, but they also have to pick one thing that they would like to be rid of, something they'd rather they didn't have to think about again. And then we talk about these things. My guest in this episode is the writer, activist, comedian and performer Mark Thomas. According to his own website, Mark has performed in four continents and in ten countries. He's performed at the National Theatre four times, and he says his performances are a mix of stand-up, theatre, journalism and the odd bout of performance art. He's been performing comedy for 35 years. He's made six series of the Mark Thomas comedy product for Channel 4 and five series of Manifesto for Radio 4. He's written five books and four play scripts. He's been credited with changing the law on tax avoidance, bringing in millions of pounds for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. He's cost one councillor and one government minister their job. He has an honorary doctorate from Bradford University and is an online pastor, legally able to perform weddings and funerals in America, rather than being covered in a nice sauce and eaten. He's won eight awards for performing, three for human rights work, and one that he invented for himself. Still, the best way to find out about Mark Thomas is to listen to him. Have fun! Zero Mustel. He was a proper old commie. He was brilliant. He was one of the ones who was blacklisted, wasn't he? Indeed he was. Yeah. There's a famous story that they were doing, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, and they were touring it around America, and the director had been in to see it when they were in Baltimore or somewhere like that. Yeah. And it said, right, we're going to get a choreographer in because you're really not on spot. You're not on point. So we need to tighten up the show. You got too loosey-goosey. <laughs> and uh, they, they brought in this guy who was renowned for giving up names during the McCarthy era. And everyone knew. And they're all waiting in rehearsal room. This guy walks in and Zero Mostel goes, in the Torah, (laughs) it is written that he who betrays his fellow man is lower than a snake. He's lower than a vermin. You are. And he just goes through this absolute (laughs) fucking tears him apart, goes, but... We on the left do not blacklist. Let's do this thing. Two, three, four. Something peculiar. (laughs) Something familiar. (laughs) Brilliant. I think he'll forever be my hero. 
just, I mean, Zero Mostel was like, I mean, I love Frankie Howard, but, you know, no. Zero Mostel was, this was a vaudeville, a piece of vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And so fucking Zero Mostel was custom built. Frankie Howard sacked me from my first job. <laughs> That's my autobiography title. Mate, I, I always remember saying to Barry Cryer something similar when he told me that he woke up once while he was sharing digs with Frankie Howard, who was masturbating. <laughs> <laughs> that would be it. Of course. <laughs> what a world. Anyway, look, we should get on with this. Whenever thing. you want to start, let's let's begin. Okay, fantastic. Mark, it's absolutely delightful to have you on my time capsule. I have to say I've been an enormous fan of yours for many years. And when I first thought of this program, I wrote a list of the people that I didn't know that I would like to have on the show, and you were right at the top. So thank you for doing this. You're very sweet. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Not at all. I've admired your work for many years. I think you're a very funny man, but also I love what you say. I have my moments. Yeah. Yeah. You do. <laughs> this might be one of them, maybe not. Let's find out. We're going to put five things into a time capsule, five things from your life that you think are precious to you. So let's start. What would you like to put in first? I think I'm going to show you something, and it's this. A placard saying, ban posh statues. Yeah. Years ago, I was doing a show where I was looking at the, the rules and regulations regarding demonstrating in Parliament Square. David Blunkett, who was then Home Secretary, said you needed to give advance notice that you were going to demonstrate <laughs> and you need to give the police six days' notice and you need to fill in a form and you know tell them all this stuff. And actually, the thing about this is that demonstrating is a right. It's a thing that you just have. You don't get permission from the state because, you know, it's often the state you're demonstrating against. The idea that you should go and ask permission from the people you're in opposition to is frankly nuts. (laughs) Would you mind if I could be rebellious, sir? Yes, for half an hour. It's nuts. (laughs) So, you know, I started to look at the way that this law was drafted very badly. If you make a law very quickly, and also if you make a law that's only designed to, it it was brought in to get the peace campaigner. Brian Hoare, who was outside about a peace camp, and it was to get rid of him. If you bring in a law that applies to everybody because you want one person to stop doing something, unless that one person is pressing a nuclear bomb, the law's not really worth it. (laughs) So they brought in this law, and we just examined it and ripped it apart. And what happened was I I started to go along, and I said, right, I want permission to demonstrate and I went to the police station, I went to Charing Cross Police Station, and I met a guy called PC Paul McAnally, who was a Scottish police officer working out at Charing Cross. And he picked up my form and goes, right, Mr Thomas, you wish to demonstrate to defend surrealism? And I said, <laughs> I, I said yes, I can demonstrate on anything I like. He said, you can indeed. I just didn't know surrealism was under threat. (laughs) (laughs) And at that point, you just think, you're in the show. Do you know what I mean? When you meet somebody, when you meet someone like that, and you just think, oh, they're full of play. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so I did a demonstration to defend surrealism. We invited the founders of the British Surrealist Movement, the Penrose family. We said, do you want to take part in a demonstration to defend surrealism in Parliament Square? And they said, no, we're all right. But they sent along they sent along items to represent themselves, a pair of socks and an onion. So standing <laughs> <Very> <laughs> in Parliament Square with a pair of socks and an onion. Defend surrealism. <laughs> we had my mates turned up. They had people brought along banners with what do we when what, which was a great, <laughs> <laughs> Great surrealist sort of like statement. Somebody else that just had wallpaper on their banner and they just stood there facing the traffic going, ah! <laughs> We just had a great laugh. Yeah. And then we applied. There's a law that says you, you need six days, but if it's an emergency demonstration, you could apply with one day. And so I applied for a demonstration to destroy surrealism. And PC pulled back, and said, you, you, were, you were defending it yesterday. I said, I've changed my mind. He said, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> you just think this is great. So we had all these demonstrations, and it led to... Basically, I said to him, PC Paul McAnally, I want to do two demos. And he goes, oh, you'll need separate permissions. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And I was like, because we wanted to prove how stupid the law was, any more paperwork was like, this is great. Mm. And I said, two, I better reply. He said, oh, Jesus. So 
we just start applying for loads of different demonstrations. And then I said, what about if I move to the other side of the road? He goes, that counts as a separate demonstration. So I said, right, so this area that it works in is quite a big area. So I, I applied for 21 demonstrations in this area, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, and they had to give me permission. And it was the, the we were having our demonstration on the same day as the anarchists were organising a, a thing to smash parliament. And they, <laughs> they hadn't got permission. So <laughs> we had this bizarre situation where I was doing all these demonstrations and we were going all around this area in central London. So we went from number 10 Downing Street and we went through Parliament Square and over uh, Hungerford Bridge, down the South Bank, we went outside the old county hall, over Westminster Bridge, by MI5, all the way up around Channel 4. We had all these, you know, all the way, all around there. And we had all these different demos all over the place. On Hungerford Bridge, I had, uh, we demand more trolls. And we had a big <laughs> demo for that. And I've got my mates to come along with me. And we've got a dustbin. We're carrying all our banners in it as the banner caddy. And we, we glued our permission and all the paperwork to the lid of this wheelie bin that we'd put all the banners in, right? Mm. So we're going along for the final demonstration. There was absolute chaos at the end of uh, Whitehall. And as we're coming, this cop just goes, stop! And my mate lifts up the lid and goes, gaze at the lid of permission. And there was all this police paperwork, and this bloke goes, all oh, right, I know you, Mark Thomas. He said, right, he said, I'm going to get my super. And the guy comes over, there's loads of cops, there's sirens, there's real mayhem going over. And this police superintendent comes over and goes, right, Mr Thomas, I said, I've got permission. He said, you have indeed. And what my job is to facilitate your right to demonstrate. However, as you can see, we've got a bit of an incident over there. And what I don't want is your presence to either incite it or for you to be dragged into the melee or for you to come to harm, sir. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to appoint these two officers here to escort you to enable you to carry out your legal and lawful right to demonstrate in Parliament Square. So <laughs> I got given these two cops and we wander into the middle of Parliament Square. There are people getting arrested. They've got their arms behind their back. There are dogs. There's flashing lights. There's people being bundled into vans. We get these two cops standing next to me while I'm standing there with mate demonstrating mandatory. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Very few people have ever protested with police protection. <laughs> so anyway, we came to do more of them because I've got loads of people. To, on one day, we got loads and loads of people to do it. I've got 10 mates and I said, you need to get 10 mates and we need to, to get them to do 20 demonstrations. And we built it up. So we had something like, uh, we had over 2,000 demonstrations. They had to give permission for to, to give all the paperwork for in one day and um i said to my children what what should i demonstrate on because i don't i was just feeling really a bit down and my daughter goes band posh statues and so she drew this ah and what's lovely is is my daughter is um she's really clever but she's really practical and she makes clothes and she makes her own music and she does her own art stuff and she She's a, a young woman who's on her way of finding herself. Mm. And this has always sort of been a lovely thing that's about her as well as about my stupidity. But it's about her and about her instinctive way of looking at the world. She instinctively, this is years ago, this is, this is 2005, and she just went band posh statues. And... I think she was six. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? And for me, this sort of symbolises, not just her, but this approach to art, that we should actually have this thing where we go, we should look at it. We should constantly go, why the fuck are these statues possible? Why aren't there any of us? Yeah. So that's got to go in. Definitely. That's a definite. Um, for me, there's a, there's a big, as you get older, I become slightly more curmudgeonly. <laughs> and it's not that I want to, it's just that um, I notice it in my mum, she's 85 and she just, and I spent lockdown, the first lockdown I spent five months with her, uh, just yeah. me and her in a two-bedroom flat and um, she's such a curmudgeon. Like, I went out the other night, right, on my walk and I'd scoped out where all the evergreen was, right? You know that holly is basically, there, there are two types of holly uh, in the fact there's male and female. That's right, with the berries or without the berries. Yeah, so you have berries, which are female, which I call molly, um, <laughs> and you have holly, which without any berries, which I call buddy, right? <laughs> so we have buddy and molly. Yes. So you so, <laughs> so you'll be driving and go, fuck, there's a bit of molly. <laughs> and you go, love that, we'll come back and get the molly, you know. Um, we all do that, you know, or maybe it's just you and I, but every time I see a, a molly, I note it. 
You do. You've got, because you go, that's, that'll be good. That's Christmas. Yeah. But I've yeah. gone and got mine. I've got Laurel. I've got Bay, because Bay is a type of Laurel. Mm-hmm. And I've got Molly. And I've, um, I've also got Mistletoe. Lovely. And uh, between you and I, I scoped it out in a cemetery. I had to go and visit someone to get it, but you know. <laughs> yeah, just you had to carry a bunch of flowers to pretend. <laughs> I didn't. I should have done it. I'm here legit. <laughs> Anybody with a bunch of flowers, you can spend as long as you like in a cemetery. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Sometimes too long. <laughs> you hang around in a cemetery it's not happening <laughs> well let's face it you don't want to spend too much time there because you're going to spend a lot of time <laughs> yeah, there anyway yeah yeah time to come for that <laughs> <laughs> oh mark okay we will put that sign into the time capsule that's your first thing so what's second why was i talking about molly and buddy you were talking about spending lockdown with your mum oh yeah Imaginally. I'm going to put her in the time capsule. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> She's fantastic. She's so rude. It's unbelievable. I phoned her up the other day to see how she was, and we just got chatting, and I talked about longevity and our family having a lot of longevity. And she just went, well, I don't want it. She said, as soon as I can't do what I want to do, that's it. I'm off. I'm out of it. Goodbye. Sayonara. I said, all right, all right. I said, as long as you leave a note saying it was nothing to do with me. I'm leaving a note saying it was you. I'm leaving a note saying you've got a special pillow you're going to put over my face. Say <laughs> <laughs> <Say> five. <laughs> this is so curmudgeonly. But, you know, obviously, um, I don't want to put my mum in there, really. No. What I want to put in there is something that's connected to her, which is my dad. Right. My dad was... Um, Shall I go and get this stuff for you and, and I'll show it you? Or would you? Yeah, I'd love not? to see it. Hold on one second. I'll go and grab it for you. Hold on. That'd be great. Hold on. Here he comes. Okay, so hold on a second, right? Mm-hmm. My dad, um, I think our parents obviously influence us hugely. My dad was a builder. He was a self-employed builder. He left school with no qualifications, literally no qualifications. He left at 14. And um, it's funny, looking back at that time, my grandmother, she came from North Seton up in the northeast. Really? She came from a mining family. And she was so funny. She used to sit me on her knee, used to bounce me up and down, smoking fags, and singing Geordie folk songs. (laughs) And what she used to be able to do was flip a cigarette so it went fully back into her mouth, and then she'd blow, the smoke would come out of the filter, then she'd flip it back, take a drag, carry on singing. Proper (laughs) grandmother, do you know what I mean? She was just, she was great, and she had this, we always had this thing in our house, and I was to lay a plate for someone who who you don't know is going to come. You lay a plate out just for someone who, who, for for a stranger, for someone who may drop in. You never know. My mum still does this. Seriously, I became diabetic during lockdown, okay, and I became diabetic during lockdown because I was staying with my mum. You open the kitchen cupboard, right, and she's got so much sugar in there, so many different types of biscuits. I once counted how many packets of biscuits she's got in there. It's like 30 packets of fucking biscuits in this cupboard. And I'm standing there going, bloody hell, you can give Mo Farah diabetes. Well, it turned out that it was me that got it, right? But the point being is, you'd say, oh, why have you got, well, you never know who's coming around. We've got a big family. So that was her thing. You had to have, you always had to have more than enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you didn't know who was coming around. You had a big family and you should always be prepared for guests and friends and strangers. My uncle Norman, we used to have these Sunday lunches that were just enormous. They were huge, great affairs. All the women did the cooking, right? Men weren't allowed in because you were regarded as predatory because you'd nick a bit of the chicken skin. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So you were kicked out, right? So the women did all the cooking. The only thing I got to do was I was allowed to take up like the Brussels sprouts or the the greens up to my nan who used to do – she had to do something for the Sunday and she had a room upstairs in my mum and dad's house and so – that would be her bit. Mm. And I'd sit with her while she did the, the one of the veg and then take it down. That would be my time. That was all I was allowed to do. The blokes every Sunday used to go down to this pub in a place called uh, Thornton Heath. And there's a pub there called Lord Napier, uh, who was a bastion of the empire. And the Lord Napier is an old jazz pub. And it's this amazing place that we used to go there every Sunday on mass. So all the family used to meet there. Mm. And, um, 
they used to have a drink called Ramen Special. It was a Young's pub and you used to get Ramen Special. So you'd get half a pint of Special and then you'd get a bottle of Ramrod and you'd put it in together and it would give you a bit of pep on a Sunday. <laughs> and we just used to take over tables, do you know what I mean? Had a big hall. So you had a, like, a little public bar and then you had a hall that you just walked through into with a stage at the back. And there used to be a jazzer called Bill Brunskill who was one of these guys who... I always used to love because what he did was he was a semi-pro. George Melly used to write articles about how good he was as a trumpeter. Wow. But Bill Brunskill always used to go, no, I never wanted to go professional. I had a pension with a civil service. So he he served out his time, got his pension, then went professional. (laughs) And I loved the way that you just all these old drunk old blokes, do you know what I mean? would would be playing there on Sunday lunchtime. And Bill always used to climb on the stage to start the second set. And he used to get his trumpet and go, and that was just the sign that everyone had to get back on. So you did, and it meant the second set's about to start. Would everyone get on stage, please? And so he always used to go there. And then my dad had this great van. It was a comma van, like an old post office van. Yeah, yeah. And me and my brother-in-law cut the back off, put a bit of ball down to make a cab, and then my brother-in-law, more than me, welded a frame on it and then put sides up so he could run scaffold poles along the top over the Mm -hmm. cab. Yeah. What it meant was in summer, everyone just piled into the back of this van, right, and bounced around, <laughs> <laughs> holding onto the sides. And sometimes people used to stand holding onto the scaffold rail, sort of like they were doing some kind of military inspection in a builder's van. <laughs> Very <laughs> so safe. We'd all go down there, we'd all pile out there, we'd all pile up home, and there'd be this massive, and everyone would have arrived, and there'd be cousins and uncles and aunties, and there'd be massive rows breaking out, and you never knew who was going to be there. You never knew. So there there was always an excess of food. There was always this thing, and everyone was welcome. And my dad was a really good builder, and he made this incredible table. We actually got the wood out of a church, and they said, we're getting rid of the pews. So me and my dad took the pews out, and they just said, get rid of them. We don't want them. So my dad was on it. He's bungling me back the thing. And... Like they were so big and heavy and incredible. I remember we couldn't shut the van doors and we had to tie them together with ropes so they were sticking out like that. And one of the pews went into the kitchen. Dad built this amazing table. So it was a long old table, the pew, then the table. Then he built a semicircular bit which you could put on for Sundays. You could get 19 people around the table. Fantastic. Massive. Yeah. And he used to always sit there in a corner of the pew right, just leaning against the end of it. And that was his position. I've got photographs of him asleep there, holding the dogs there, mucking about with my mum there, cheers, you know, read it. Every, that was his spot, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And everyone was welcome and everyone got treated right. And if my dad was in money, then everyone was treated properly. And he left school with nothing. And he did an apprenticeship in carpentry and joinery. And the thing I think I've taken from him is his work ethic, that fuck everyone. You know, if you want something to happen, make it happen. Don't rely on people. Just get on and do it. And what I've got is my dad's. This is a little frame, and I don't know if you can see it here. Uh Here's his builder's certificate, right, right, that he's done his apprenticeship in carpentry and joinery Mm. at National Joint Council for Building Industry. Can you see that? Yeah. And on this, this is his deed of apprenticeship, right? Uh. But this one, it was so young his mum had to sign it on his behalf. He wasn't legally oh, no. able to sign it. And, and I love these. Mm. I really, really genuinely love these. Mm-hmm. There's something beautiful about the innocence of them that he he wasn't even able to sign it, but also of just like this defiant starting point. Yeah, show me how to do it yeah. and then I'll get on with it. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's what an apprenticeship is, is you go to someone who knows how to do it, you say, show me what I have to do, uh, and then completely. you do it. And my dad had this real thing that he would just, and anyone he, anyone he worked with, you know, how'd you do that? You know, and he, he became brilliant. I always remember I used to work with this old bricklayer called Frank who was just the dirtiest man ever. Yeah. He used to buy a pair of winter long johns and put them on at the end of September. They were button-down flaps, right? And he'd burn them round about March. <laughs> <laughs> and we were we were convinced the only time he took them off was Christmas Day when he'd have a bath and come and have Christmas lunch with us. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I always remember Frank, who was so funny. 
I remember him saying to me once, he goes, when I was your age, I used to muck up for a brickie. And do you know, I used, I used to say to him on payday, do you know what, mate? I'm not blowing smoke up your butt. You're the best bricklayer I've ever worked with. He said, thank you very much. He's a tenner. So mm. come punk payday, I remember going, Frank, listen, I don't want to blow smoke up you, mate. I just want to, he said, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> They're all like that. I live opposite a bricklayer. Okay. In his 80s, but he is an astonishing bricklayer. I mean, he's, he lives in a house that he built. And to keep himself occupied while building it, he practised almost every possible way of laying a brick in this one house. So it has parts of it that are herringbone. Wow. And if ever I see a builder turn up in our street and if they start mixing cement, I say to them, he'll be over in a minute. Be careful because he really knows his stuff. Do you know, it's funny. My dad, whenever he, he very rarely went on holiday, right? But he, when he did go on holiday, he was so funny because he would... We went on a canal holiday round. <laughs> it's just the worst. Birmingham and Coventry canals. Right? <laughs> Lovely. So he'd go away on holiday and he started to have more towards the end of his life. And he'd come back and he, everyone would get their photographs back. You know, you'd take them to the developers and they would come back. You'd get 36 or 24 photographs that would mm-hmm. arrive, out of which a handful would be crap and what you wouldn't bet, you know. <laughs> so my dad would get his 36 back and there'd be three of the family and the rest were all of joints and brickwork. And <laughs> and do you know what I mean? It was just he yeah. photographed all the things that had caught his eye. Yeah, well, there's a man who loved his trade. Yeah, absolutely. You should be proud to put your dad's apprenticeship qualification forms. Forms. Yeah, you should put them straight into the time capsule. We're going to take a short break here so the podcast company can insert some adverts. My time capsule will be back in about 30 seconds. See you then. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Mark Thomas and the things he'd like to put into a time capsule. This is going to go in. It's a bit of the Berlin Wall. Oh, wow. Fantastic. I booked a holiday with my then girlfriend to go to Berlin it was that time between the wall coming down and reunification happening. And it was, um, it was thrilling. Mm. It was like being in a place that was, that had come alive. It was like mainlining. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. I partly went over cause I, uh, I love Bertolt Brecht, like to the point of idolatry. Do you know what I mean? And I wanted to go to his house. And his house is in East Germany. His house, the, the, the museum is his house in East Germany. Mm-hmm. And um, I always loved Bertolt Brecht because he was the first playwright that I saw at school that I just had my head turned by. I went to see Caucasian Chalk Circle. So at the beginning, there's a big argument. Who should get the land? Should it be the cheesemakers? Should it be the vegetable growers? You know, and you're going, cheesemakers, they've grown it for years. And then they have this amazing play take place. And then they say at the end, right, who gets the land, cheesemakers or the vegetables? It should go to the vegetable people because they're <laughs> going to make more use of it and they're yeah. going to feed more people. And you go, yes, give it to the vegetable people. <laughs> and what I was what I was amazed at, and I, I remember as a young man literally being thrilled that you could change your mind in a theatre. Yeah, the play changes your mind. 
yeah. of the audience. So you could walk in and see it and agree with one preposition, mm-hmm. and by the time it had finished, you would agree with the opposite. <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, how bloody marvellous is that? Thrilling. That was amazing for me. That was a really amazing thing. Um those sorts of things that sort of really inform you. And it's only later that it sort of falls into place and you start to put all the pieces together. But seeing that play was just changed everything for me somehow. Yeah. Fundamentally, it set the course for what I think art should be about or any kind of entertainment, any kind of creative endeavour, which is change, creativity, to create something new, to make you look at something differently. And I loved that. I loved that. And so I became, I won a place at drama school. Uh, it was Bretton Hall College, which is up in uh, Yorkshire. Um, my dad was so funny. I was the first person in my family to go to university, but it was drama school. <laughs> <laughs> so pride, but also disappointment. Oh, you've never seen anyone so proud and crestfallen in the same moment. <laughs> it came round in the end, but... What I loved was this idea that you could change things. Mm. And so I just became obsessed with Bertolt Brecht. And whenever the chance I got, I was very precociously directing Bertolt Brecht shows, plays in my first bloody year. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I was barely out of leg warmers. And the idea of going to East Germany just thrilled me because of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and recording in Berlin and having the backdrop of the wall and what it meant and what and it was ideas of freedom and totalitarianism and what people do to rebel to create things and i always found that absolutely you know a really fascinating thing in fact you got Bertolt Brecht there as well this is a man who who got paid into a swiss bank account had a home in west germany and a home in east germany with his theater and you think well there's a refugee do you know what i mean there's a <laughs> yeah. man who's had to flee from one or more armies uh, which indeed he had yes indeed so i arrived there at his place and i remember going around the, there the graveyard we got there early and i said should we wander around here and there's a graveyard and it was as we wandered around it was for it was next door to the museum in his house it was apparently for apparatchiks it was for you know people in the communist party mm-hmm. and then i suddenly saw bertolt brecht's and helen weigel's graves so brecht's wife and really incredible one of the great actresses of her generation buried next to him but on the tombstones in white paint was Juden Rouse oh, and a Lord. swastika. No. And I was so shocked. I was nearly in tears of rage. Well, I'm not surprised. And I remember going into this museum, going into this house, and there's about four or five of us there to be on the guided tour, and the tour guide said, have you got any questions before we get going? I said, yeah, I want to know why you've got that filth on that grave out there. What's going on there? And she said, I'm very glad you've asked. The family have asked that it stays on for the time being to remind people what we face as Germany changes. Uh, And I thought, fucking hell, the old bastard's even challenging how I see things in death. (laughs) Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? Absolutely, because you think you know what you're thinking. You know, you're going there as an informed person. Yeah, I I know about Bertolt Brecht. Ask me questions. (laughs) And so this bit of the Berlin Wall, this has stayed with me for 32 years, something like that, however long ago it was. And I've always just just kept it about. And I think it's remarkable. All this stuff is remarkable. There was a, a tunnel that went under the wall. It was built in an old bakery, a disused bakery on the west, Mm -hmm. and it went over to a toilet in a block of flats in the east. But no one can know what's happening. The authorities are watching both sides of the wall looking for activity, which means all these students had to quietly assemble and they would stay there. Their task was to quietly arrive quietly exist, make as little noise, draw as little attention to themselves as possible, to dig this tunnel, to rest and eat, and then dig the tunnel again. And you try and get as many people as you can across. I think it was 57 people crossed before they noticed it. Mm. And what I was amazed at is when you see things like that, you know, a group of people who go, right, we're just going to, it's not going to give up a weekend to go collecting for the homeless. This is, <laughs> we're going to spend six weeks, two months in a house doing nothing but digging mm. and preparing to dig. Yeah. And what we will do 
is we will change the lives of 57 people forever. Yeah. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It is pretty cool. It is. I mean, I, Berlin is an extraordinary place, and I do like that even though a lot of the wall is gone, that you can clearly see the remnants of it in, in the sense that you, you there's that great stretch of extraordinarily modern flats that they built on East Berlin, on the East Berlin side. Beautiful, really classy flats that they built right next to the wall to say, you really should be over this side. We're doing some fantastic things. But immediately behind it, the buildings were exactly the same as they had been at the end of the Second World War. Those buildings are something else as well, because they've all got the bullet holes from the Battle of Berlin. Mm-hmm. It really did look like something out of the Ipcris file with Michael Caine or something. Do you know what I mean? Or something like that. <laughs> yeah. A remarkable place. Yeah. I mean, people forget that there was that period when basically East Germany had lost control of people. They had to let them through because they just couldn't stop them. They'd been shooting people a year before, and suddenly they went, okay, you can go and visit, but you've got to come back. And the East Germans went, okay. And they did go back. I I mean, I do think there's something remarkable about totalitarian states. You know, I would say this, but (laughs) they have within them the seeds of their own destruction just because people just want to have it. No. Look at the fuss people are having over masks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's hardly totalitarianism, (laughs) a safety measure. Well, let's face it, over vaccination. 30% 30% of the population will say, not for me, thank you very much. I don't want you sticking that thing in my arm. That thing I've been waiting a year for desperately. It's extraordinary, 30%. It is nuts, isn't it? Crazy. We are crazy, aren't we, human beings? I think at the moment we are. And I think what it is is that, I mean, if you look at it just in terms of democracy rather than a kind of like broader sweep of Marxist analysis, <laughs> um, I know, words which, which fill your heart with joy. <laughs> It's nice to hear them again. <laughs> but you know, if you have if you look at in terms of democracy, really it goes wrong when the twin towers come down. It starts to go wrong then when George Bush decides to attack and declare war on an entire country that had nothing to do with a terrorist attack. And that no matter what anybody says or whatever proof people put forward or lack of proof, it makes no difference. Yeah, exactly. So you have this rupturing of faith, you know, that actually the the dodgy dossier was dodgy. No, the idea that Saddam Hussein could launch chemical weapons in 45 minutes is ridiculous, Mm. absolutely ridiculous. The echo chamber of self-belief and reconfirmation, it was incredible within Downing Street and within those structures of of organising war. And they were so opposed to the populace. I have to say, I found it very difficult at that time. I'd had such confidence in the Labour Party when they won that election. It was the phrase education, education, education. It had absolutely turned me as far as I was concerned. They had my vote and I had complete faith in them. And so I found it really tough to accept that they were then deceiving me. I just kept saying they can't be, they just can't be. And so I hung out for a long time before actually protesting against that war. I kept saying they must have the evidence. That's what motivated a lot of people was the betrayal, the feeling of betrayal, the feeling of uh, optimism, which they felt in 97, which was huge. And it was just seeing the back of the Tories. It was just seeing them gone. Um, And I think education, 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 which I always said, you know, was was more of a stammer than a policy. But (laughs) I think Sure Start was remarkable because Sure Start brought literacy to people and there is a proven link between illiteracy and criminality. So when you cut Sure Start, which is the programme that intervenes to teach people to read and write, you can literally measure the growth in illiteracy because you've measured the growth in literacy as you've introduced the programme. So when you withdraw it, you know there will be a decline. You know that there will be. You know what will happen. Yeah. Now, if you have got a relationship between 
you know, illiteracy and criminality and people being in prison, then what you're doing is you're just chucking people into the prison system, you know, 20-odd years down the line, which is just a crime, you know, that's the crime. Yeah. And, you know, even if you look at it from, a, an, you know, just from a greedy economics, what do you want to pay? What do you want to pay, 50 grand a year down there or do you want to pay sort of like a couple of grand here? You've got a choice, mm. you know, and I think those bits were really impressive. So you get the uh, Iraq war, you get... Uh, uh, the MPs' expenses, you know, where people are just going, bloody hell, they're all at it. Uh, you get the banking crisis, you get the media and the um, the, the the phone hacking and Millie Dowler and the police, you know. And so actually what you have are these sort of structures that we should have faith in, you know, that if you, are, if you do believe in sort of British democracy as it was, then all the pillars have suddenly gone, you know, of, mm. of parliament and of the police and of the due process of the, the civil service and the impartiality on all of those things, of the media, its ability to report it, of the police and the corruption involved in it, all these things go, the very thing of your home, which is now, boom, that's gone out the window. You know, the banking system is rotten to the core and it's going to take us all down and it nigh on did and it did for many people mm-hmm. you know suddenly you have this thing and it's all collapsed and what you're left with is this wasteland of trust there's no trust there you don't trust him this is why what's interesting in america is dr fauci when you look at him people trust him they yeah. trust him because he very gently says the truth and actually um you, you know that picture of him trying to suppress laughter while standing behind Trump, <laughs> won him a million fans. But I think the same thing applies here as applied in America, which is that Johnson was able to present himself as, well, I'm not really an MP. I mean, you've seen me. I've been on Have I Got News For You. And I, I stopped being an MP for a long time and became mayor of London and did 2012. So I'm not really one of them. It turns out to be absolutely one of them, right at the core. Uh, he is to the core part of the establishment. Um I've got, I've got a new book coming out. I'm going to read you the beginning because here we are. You ready? Yeah. This is the beginning. Every serious person should wake screaming at least once a week at the thought that Boris Johnson is a prime minister, let alone our prime minister. <laughs> our prime minister. Whether you voted for him or not, our prime minister has all the gravitas of a wet wipe and the intellectual agility of a mobility scooter. <laughs> His every public appearance is a humiliation. He stands at the dispatch box in the commons full of lies, evasions, crap jokes, bluster and incompetence, a blonde blubbering fib pudding of entitlement, droning on and on like a shit best man at his own wedding. <laughs> Every Prime Minister's questions is a television car crash involving a massive Ferguson of reality and the clown car of his mind. In a just <laughs> world, he wouldn't be Prime Minister. He would do the job he was born to do. He'd be an over-familiar estate agent driving a Foxton's Mini around <laughs> Chelsea and bumming a bump off of his best pal, Govey. <laughs> so you voted for him, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> big, big fan. I just if you're gonna if you're gonna write something, you know, start as you mean to go on. Yeah. I mean, I think that that when you break down those kind of levels of trust as well and, and also parts of community, because one of the big things of community was used to be trade unionism. And and that's sort of really been eroded. So and the the, the thing about places like Wakefield, you know, which I, I, where I went to college, I was part of the Red Shed, which is a Labour club. It was the epitome of working class self-improvement, that it would be about communal improvement as well as individual improvement. Mm-hmm. And actually, you could see that in action in a colliery band. If you've ever watched a colliery brass band, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And for me, when communities get eroded like that, when the glue that pulls us together gets taken away what floods in are the conspiracies, you know, so that you have a vacuum of trust and a vacuum of of being part of something. And that's where the conspiracy theories breed. The end of suspicion that everybody else is against you. Yeah. When in fact, they all want to come around and have a cup of tea, really. Most of them do. I am against them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got that piece of the Berlin Wall to give you hope. I think Indeed. put that in there and you can look at that anytime and say things can get better, not in the sense of things can only get better in the Blairite way, but really better. Yeah. The other thing I think I'd take with me into the time capsule is a record mm-hmm. from an album called Roots and Blues. And it's a song called Moaning. And it's uh, a Charles Mingus song. There are, t- there, there are several jazz 
pieces called Moaning. One is a, an Art Blakey piece, which is just magnificent. And also, if you get there's, there's an amazing record. Oh, just the piano work is breathless. You know when you hear something and your heart breaks with the joy of it. <laughs> Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, 1958, recorded live in Holland. There's a piece called Moaning that will break your heart. And I feel that way about lots of music. Do you know what I mean? When mm. Music is something that I just, I can't quite function without. I love listening. For me, it's kind of, I'll put on Radio 4 for a little bit in the morning, but then it will be promptly into, you know, whatever it is. It might be sort of Howling Wolf and the Chicago Blues, and or it might be, you know, it might be Johnny Cash. I've got a whole stack of Johnny Cash. I was once doing a gig, right, and my tour manager was a great East End bloke. He was all like 18 stone. I got in, and it was a while ago, and I got him with a pile of CDs. And he goes, what you got there? And I said, I've got some Johnny Cash. He goes, what else? I said, no, it's all Johnny Cash. <laughs> and we were driving up to Newcastle and back, and we did the whole journey there and back on Johnny Cash. <laughs> and it was only by the time we got to about Milton Keynes on the way back where he just went, I've had enough, Tomo! <laughs> <laughs> just yesterday, I found out a Johnny Cash fact, which I thought was really fascinating. The fellow in Dr. Hook, remember? Yeah, Sylvia's yeah, mother, yeah. With, with the eye patch, yeah. wrote Boy Named Sue. <gasps> wow, that's a very good fact. Yeah, that is a really good fact. I'm, I'm, I went to see Johnny Cash. I mean, I am a fan. And he was still cutting it. There's some of the last gigs he did, but by God, they were magnificent. And there's something brilliant about seeing a performer like that who can't do anything but do it. Mm. There's a great story that he recorded um, Redemption Song by Bob Marley. Yeah. And um, he used to have a house in Jamaica. And he went to record uh, Redemption Song. And the sound engineer said, Johnny, do you want to change the lyrics here? And I think it was Joe Strummer who was because Joe Strummer adored him. Joe Strummer might have told the story. And he said, uh, the first line of Redemption Song is, them pirates, they do rob I. Right? And the sound engineer goes, Johnny, do you want to change it? And Johnny Cash apparently turned around and said, Bob Marley wrote this song, you don't change your goddamn line. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And if you listen to those albums where he's performing in Folsom Prison and, you know, all, and Sam Quinton, they are magnificent recordings. And there's a man who believes in redemption, and, and that's an important thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. An important redemption is a thing that, you know, all of us are in need of and so loathe to give it to anyone else. We really are, you know, and I just think, you know, for the love of God, you just find a little bit of humanity. We've got to learn to forgive each other and move on. Otherwise we're all bloody doomed. Absolutely. So, I, I, you know, I love Johnny Cash. I love music, but this piece of music is by Charles Mingus and it's called Moaning. And it's quite a famous piece. And it starts with this saxophone. It goes, and it is just this wonderful, wonderful sound that captivates you. And it's just so joyous and overwhelming. And it makes you sort of feel so alive. It just makes you feel so excited. A mate of mine, right, had this thing with his daughter when she was quite young. She was playing, he was playing some music with some techno. And she was very young. She was running around the room and she just went, it makes me feel crazy. And that's what I feel like when I listen to that music. It makes me feel those feelings yeah and that has to go in and also my son gave me that my son gave it to me he, he said uh, but because of the brilliance of kind of like you know of youtube and the internet and you know spotify and you know all of that it means that none of that generational baggage goes with music so he just goes you've got to listen to charles mingus while my mate who's the old east end tour manager who's 58 was going i've got a great bit of fucking south african rap for you <laughs> so you get these do, do you know what i mean you get these yeah the, 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 and, and what it means is you're just far more open to listen to things and hear things and and get excited by new things even though it might it's just new to you but that that piece of music by mingus i think there's I always remember we're touring in, in, in New York. I did some gigs in New York and it was just like a dream for me. Do you know what I mean? Doing a gig in New York. We were standing in this flat in Queens and we had to get the, the train over and you'd, you'd watch the front of the train turning on the tracks 
you know, as you go over the river. And um, I loved every minute of it. There's a band called the Charles Mingus Big Band, which was created by his widow. He always wanted a big band and he never got one. So his widow created one and they have a residency in New York every week at the Jazz Standard. And when we were there, I said to my son, we got to go. And they started with moaning. And we looked at each other (laughs) and it was one of those... Moments because it was so, we were right that we were literally at the front table. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. And it just and there's room for 150 people in that club. Bang! Whole thing just blew up. It was amazing, amazing. Mm. When you hear there's a the, one of my favourite artists, Joe Strummer, uh, does this amazing thing when he's he's singing on um, they're recording a song Armageddon Time and they're recording it in New York, and it, and, and it, they, they're clearly in a riff. And the word is, the story was, you can hear a little noise, and you hear Strummer going, OK, OK, don't push us when we're hot! And what he's saying <laughs> is the sound engineer's going, that's great, we've got to take. And Strummer's going, no, no, we're on it. And it's a beautiful thing. It's just the moment. If you hit the right moment for any piece of music, it's a glorious thing. There's something brilliant about making a sound that we all love. There's something brilliant about coming together to make that sound. There was a great jazz drummer called John Stevens, who really was somewhere else. And uh, he, years and years ago, I, I was working with a guy called Colin Watkins, who used to run a theatre. And, and um, Colin's great. And he was always into, you know, performance art. And he would always want to show new things. And one of the things that I remember him doing was bringing this guy, John Stevens, along and going, this is how you improvise with jazz. And he does this thing called call and reflect. So you listen to some, what someone's doing and then you give your interpretation of it. It doesn't matter because you're not trying to impersonate them. No. You're trying to give your interpretation of what they've done. And what will happen is your interpretation will be different. Yeah. And if you listen to jazz musicians, that's what they do all the time. They're listening to each other. There's a great story of of Herbie Hancock was talking about Blue Note, the record label. And he said what was amazing was playing with Miles Davis because Herbie Hancock was part of Miles Davis's band. Mm -hmm. And he said, he said, one night we were playing. And this is an old man. Herbie Hancock's an old man when he tells his story. He said, we were playing and we were playing so right. Everything was so right. The audience were right. The band were right. We were so tight. We were so on it. We were swinging. We were completely there. And then I played a chord that was so wrong. It was, so, <laughs> and you could see him wince as an old man at the memory of what he did as a young man. Mm. And he said, and it was so wrong. And Miles made it right because Miles didn't hear a mistake. He heard something interesting. <laughs> That's proper. Isn't That's, it? That is proper, isn't it? Oh, God, if only we could all hear mistakes as an inspiration. Wouldn't it be brilliant? Absolutely. The one thing I love about stand-up is the ability for, for the audience to interject and change the entire course of an evening. And uh, I love that uniqueness. I love the fact that every night is different. I, lo- I love the fact that people join in. I don't want people to be quiet. I want them to shout. I want them to have ideas. I want them to sometimes beat me. Because <laughs> if they've won, hooray, fucking great. We've got something exciting <laughs> going on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, the idea is that it's a dialogue. Performance is a dialogue. It's not monologue. If you're just reciting things, you're reciting things. But it's like you're listening to the audience. You're you're listening to how they react and the pace of which they react and how you want them to react. And you're listening to what they say and they, you know, all of that. And so for me, there's a. I, I think jazz and improvising is one of those great, great things that just makes you feel so happy. It makes me feel happy. Hmm. Then we should definitely put it into the time capsule. Well, unfortunately, we have to put one more thing in, which is something you want to get rid of, but you don't strike me as a sort of person who who wants to reject that many things from your life. No, I don't think so. Um, what would I want to put in there? My dad's cooking. <laughs> it, it, my, I've got a photograph of my dad hoovering at Christmas <laughs> with a Christmas hat on and he's laughing and singing. And the reason we got a photograph is because we had to document it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so he, domestically, he was rubbish. My mum went into hospital to have my brother and she was in there for, I've forgotten what was wrong with her, but she had, she had to spend a couple of months in hospital in the lead up to my brother's birth. And my dad used to send us out to the neighbours for tea and 
everyone in the street was an uncle or an auntie. And so you got sent over. We had Uncle Jim and Auntie Marge and all of that. And then John and Ivy and all that, you know. And and well, we had Uncle Dave and Penny. They were the best ones. Dave and Penny were the best. Dave was a carpet fitter and Penny used to be a pants person. Oh, wow. She was a pants person. And we always <laughs> used to like, oh, you know, because we were all young <laughs> kids. And we were like, oh, yeah. pants people. And she used, to, uh, she used to do fish fingers and Arctic roll. You know, obviously, th- th- those were the star dishes. Mm. I remember we'd go in and my mum, my dad always used to try and do Sunday lunch and it always ended up as fish fingers and baked beans. <laughs> I remember going in to see my mum in hospital going, God, we can't stand the fish fingers and baked beans. <laughs> so my dad's cooking would be one of the things we could put in there. Um, I think what I'd like to put in is probably my youthful intolerance. I think I've become more tolerant as a person and I hope so. Mm. So I think my youthful intolerance, I would very much, and I still do it to an extent, do you know what I mean? I still think that mustard-coloured corduroy trousers are an indicator. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You're right. And you see it and you just think, I don't want to fucking meet this person. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise, but do you know what I mean? It is, and I think I shouldn't be intolerant, but I am. Um, and, and I think I'd like to put my abrasiveness into the time capsule. There are lots of people who I'm really grateful for who have been incredibly kind and supportive when they shouldn't have when i was a you know i, I think alcohol i'd love to put in there mm. drugs as well put drink we put drink drugs and intolerance in there okay i'm very glad that i don't do any of that anymore mm. but you're right about that intolerance and not seeing another person's point of view, not taking the time to try and understand what somebody's saying to you when you just go, no, I disagree. No, you're wrong. We all suffer from that to an extent. And it's also that thing where you just kind of go, actually, everyone's got summit. Everyone's got summit. And and, and I love the fact, like where I live, I live in Tooting and, and I can open the kitchen and there's a little balcony out there. It's not very big. There's a little balcony. Mm-hmm. And next to me, there's someone... My neighbour's got balcony. On the other side, they've got balcony, and then one across, they've got balcony. And opposite, they've got balcony over there, balcony over there, balcony. And we've got this little rear window New York scene going on in Tooting. And everyone everyone brings something. And I wish I'd kind of known that earlier. Yeah, I absolutely understand that. Anybody gets to a certain age, they look back at their youthful self and thinks, if you just shut up a bit more, and taking the time to listen to what people were saying. Me and my mates, right, because the people who I started performing with was Kevin Day and James McCarber. Now, James McCarber is sadly dead, but Kevin is now the person who writes the funny lines for Gary Lineker. (laughs) And Kev's a great performer. And Kev, me and Jim used to, like, we were just like, we were just like this gang. And we, you know, you go to the comedy store, there were two shows, right? You have the early show and the late show, and the late show starts at midnight. So if you were doing a gig in London, you'd do the gig, you'd get your money, you'd have a drink, and then you'd head over to the stores for the start of the second show. And you'd hang out in the back bar. And that's where everyone went. You hung out in the back bar and you chatted and the, whoever was managing that night at some point would lean around and go, will you shut the fuck up? Some people are working. And would be shouting at all the comics. Yeah. And you'd always know when a comic was doing well because the back bar would shut up and come and have a look. I always remember when Harry Enfield started performing as, as a stand-up by himself because he was in a double act called Dusty and Dick and they stopped that and then he did stand-up by himself. And that's when he did Chumley, yeah. you know, and when he first did Stavros. Everyone stopped. Everyone fucking stopped. You couldn't get a drink at the bar. You couldn't get a meal at the kitchen. No, the security were there. Everyone would come out and watch him because he was he was on fire. And you can see it with comics when they hit a point and they burn. They've realised how good they are and they've got a bit more headroom. And it's about six months, this period of, of time, I think. Mm-hmm. And I saw it in Lee Evans and I saw it in Jack D. Mm. When you see this period of time when for six months they're king and everything they do just... And it's a remarkable period in a, in a comedian's life and you just... And it's amazing to see. And, and 
me and, and Kevin Day and Jim Miller used to charge down to that back bar. <laughs> and, you know, we were all of 23, 24. <laughs> and we'd be going up to these slightly older comics going, you're shit, you should retire, you should have gone a long while ago. <laughs> and, in fact, we were known as the Brat Pack. <laughs> <laughs> the Brat Pack. It's a long time ago. Indeed. Oh, Mark, it's been, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk Thank to you. Thank you for having us on. I've really, really enjoyed it. So have I enormously. I knew I would. Uh, I could listen to you all day. I could speak all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, man, it's a real delight. And um, hopefully I'll see you outside Batsy Art Centre soon. Yeah, in the flesh. Wouldn't that be nice? And I look forward to it. I shall give you a great big hug. Man, it will be reciprocated. <laughs> I'm going to hug everyone. Don't think it's special <laughs> just for you, you know. Once I can, I'm going to be arrested. No, no, no. I won't let you go. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mark Thomas. If you'd like to hear more episodes, we have lots available for you to stream for free, and you can subscribe on Acast or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And if you've got a spare moment, we'd appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a short review. And you can follow us on social media by searching at MyTCPod or by following me. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. The music was by Pass the Peas Music. You can find all the links you need on the web pages, which go along with any of our episodes. All very interesting information, I'm sure you'll agree. Unless you're a regular listener to this podcast, in which case you may have heard it before. Still, if any of you would like to learn how to suck eggs, I'll be giving lessons to my granny on Facebook Live in a few minutes. Do join us. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.